Welcome to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast, a weekly program that looks back at historic content from our archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by today's edition. On April 14th of 2021, a committee of the Maine House heard citizen testimony on the Convention of States Action Resolution. In addition to local supporters, COS Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs, Rada Peters, testifies in favor of COS Action's Article 5 resolution for proposing term limits, fiscal restraints, and limits on the size and scope of the federal government. Representative Harrington, you are the sponsor of HP 0467, is that correct, sir? I am, yep. Okay, you have the floor. Why don't you present right. that and we'll bring on some co-sponsors. Sure. Uh, Senator Baldacci, Representative Matlack, members of the committee uh, on state and local government. I am Representative Matt Harrington. I represent part of the city of Sanford in House District 19. I'm here today to present House Paper 467, the joint resolution making application to Congress of the United States calling for an Article 5 constitutional convention to propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for federal officials and members of Congress. I believe that the federal government has overreached its authority in many areas that belong to the states, and Article 5 is the proper mechanism for restoring the balance of power between the state government and the federal government. I have a unique perspective on this issue because Uh, Several years ago, I participated in the first ever Article 5 uh, simulated convention that was held in Williamsburg, Virginia. I, along with uh, former Senator uh, Garrett Mason and Representative Randy Greenwood, we were their commissioners. um, (coughs) Sorry. Uh, Former Senator Garrett Mason and Representative Randy Greenwood were commissioners representing the state of Maine. Uh, 137 uh, commissioners, including 115 sitting state legislators and 22 non-legislator citizens representing a broad range of diverse range of state and regional concerns participated in this event, which was a complete success and a great experience. As a participant, I can tell you the process works. The commissioners all approached the event as though they were actually drafting and debating uh, real amendments that would be sent to the states for ratification. It takes 34 states to call the convention and 38 states to ratify uh, amendments. That means if only 13 states were to vote no on ratification, the answer is no. This is a safe process and one that the state of Maine should be eager to participate in to help our nation and the people of Maine. So far, 15 states have passed this resolution. Hopefully Maine can become the 16th. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, Any questions for Representative Harrington? Okay, well, the one question I have, actually I'll ask it for uh, both Representative Wadsworth and Representative Harrington. It's my understanding, there's never been a, this procedure has never been used to actually achieve a constitutional amendment. Is that correct? That that is correct. Yep. Yep, it, it is uh, it is spelled out in our constitution, uh, but Article Five has never been used. Okay, and the other concern I have, the concern I have is about having a constitutional convention. I understand that the language of the of the uh, items tries to limit the topics of the constitutional convention, but my understanding is once the delegates get there. They can do just, they can 
do just about whatever they want to beyond these topics. Isn't that correct? It's limited to the call of the resolution. Well, I so understand. It has to be spelled out. Yeah, you don't. You don't think. You don't think that 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 could be changed by the delegates who go there. Even if that were to happen, it, this would still come back to the states for ratification, and thirty-eight states would have to vote to approve anything that were to come out of there. Okay, I mean, my major concerns are about process, about opening up a constitutional convention. And that almost anything uh, could happen in terms of amendments, but that's my that's, those are my questions. Are there other members of the committee that wish to ask any questions? Okay, uh, Rep. Senator Bennett, I think, is the next person. Sir, you can speak on both items if you wish. Thank you. Well, I'm the prime sponsor of, uh, of uh, Representative uh, Wadsworth's measure, and I'm uh, happy to, but my comments do relate to both, and I appreciate the courtesy of the committee. Um, Senator Baldacci, Representative Matlack, uh, esteemed members of the committee, uh, I am Rick Bennett. I have the honor of serving District 19 in the State Senate. I'm from Oxford. Um, there's no doubt that our US Congress is broken and it will take a lot of reform for us to repair it. And one critical part of fixing Congress in my view is to impose term limits like exist for the president and here in Maine for all offices. Let me suggest uh, four basic reasons why term limits are proper and useful as a reform mechanism. First, the power of incumbency. In most legislative bodies, over 90% of the incumbents who seek reelection win another term. In fact, any legislator who is doing his or her job satisfactorily should be able to use the privileges of incumbency as a springboard to a long career, doing constituent work, responding to pleas for help or information, answering telephone calls and letters, writing newspaper columns, garnering media attention are all very legitimate work activities for a legislator. These tasks usually uh, and rightly, are paid for by the state, but they unquestionably help in the legislators' re-election efforts as well. And term limits may be the only way of breaking this considerable power of incumbency. Second is political careerism. In Maine, prior to the imposition of term limits, we had a healthy 40% turnover of the legislature every two years. Opponents to the reform argued that this demonstrated that term limits were unneeded. The statistics don't tell the whole story. We also need to consider those who were leaving office. Many talented legislators frustrated by an internal power structure controlled by the longest serving members leaving after one or two terms. Powerful leadership posts and chairmanships were held year after year by a handful of career legislators, denying equal representation for the people who like them to turn over their legislators every few years. Now important questions within the legislature change hands every two or four years, ensuring fresh strengthen the legislature uh, institutionally. Um, I'm sorry, there was a, some noise there. Um, that uh, strengthen the legislature institutionally by empowering its rank and file members. Um, I think the same is true in Congress with, if, if we win this reform. Third, losing good people. It, it's, on, it's a common argument that term limits uh, you, opponents use that the restrictions ensure that good, hardworking, popular incumbents get turned out of office along with those less likable legislators, the term limits targets. In truth, however, we cannot measure the number of good, 
talented people who never run for office and never have the opportunity to serve because they are locked out by the power of incumbency. However, we have seen several cases of term-limited members trying to stage a comeback here in Maine by running against their replacements. In half of those cases, voters decide to stay with a new member, even though it is likely that absent term limits, the old member still would be in office. And fourth, the, light, the right to limit our choices. Term limits have only become law where the people have voted to impose them. In Maine, the only organized opposition has come from basically lobbyists and legislators themselves. People have a right to restrict their choices. And with term limits, they have done so deliberately and with full understanding of the trade-off this entails. In exchange for partially limiting their choices among candidates, they correctly believe that they are limiting also the accumulation of power in the hands of a few. When the point comes down to that, what, what the point comes down to is that in the long run, term limits actually improve choices and open participation by bringing more people into the political process and by helping restore citizens' fractured faith in their government. Those who want to change or repeal term limits ought not to do it by legislative fiat in Augusta. And I believe that it's really important that we take this reform to the United States Congress. It won't be done by Congress itself. I just want to make one other uh, area of comment um, before closing, and that is the need to for the legislature and our joint rule 215, which is directly um, uh, relevant to this discussion. Unfortunately, no matter how important this reform is to the American people, passage of such a resolution is rendered very difficult because of our joint rule 215. That requires a two-thirds vote by both the main House and the main Senate. This two-thirds requirement prohibits the voice of the people of Maine and this legislature from being able to influence national policy because a small minority can block any resolution from passing, whether it's for congressional term limits, a balanced budget amendment, campaign finance reform, gerrymandering, or whatever the needed reform is. This obstacle of a two-thirds vote effectively prevents the main legislature from ever joining with other states to exercise their constitutional authority under Article 5 of the Constitution. We have limited our ability to check the abuses of power by the federal government, which is the very reason the framers placed the convention mode in Article 5. Joint Rule 215 needs to return to how it used to be of requiring a simple majority vote. Previously, these resolutions were passed by a simple majority. As an example, uh, Senator Baldacci asked about um, the use of this uh, in the past. Well, this is interesting. In 1911, the Maine legislature joined 28 states in passing an Article 5 application for the direct election of senators, U.S. senators, which came only two states shy of calling for the convention. The pressure from the state legislatures actually prodded Congress to propose the amendment instead, and that is how the 17th Amendment was proposed and passed. Also, in, um, this rule allows the legislature to completely ratify an amendment by a simple majority vote, but to apply to Congress to allow us to meet, to simply propose an amendment requires a two-thirds vote. This doesn't really make a lot of sense, and we ought to correct it. I encourage you to please vote ought to pass on these joint resolutions, or at least one of them, and to allow for fair and open seat elections for Congress. I appreciate the opportunity. I'd be pleased to take your questions. Thank you, Senator Bennett. Um, any questions for Senator Bennett? Okay, thank you, sir.
Thank uh, you. It was a very instructive history. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, who is next, uh, Cheryl? We have uh, Ken Quinn on here. Okay, Mr. Quinn, you have the floor for three minutes. Can you hear me? Yes. Good afternoon, uh, Senator Baldacci, Representative Matlack, and distinguished committee members. My name is Ken Quinn. I live in Bridgeton, Maine, and I am the regional director with U.S. Term Limits. And I'm here to testify on behalf of actually 84% of the American people that support term limits for Congress. And as it was already mentioned, this issue crosses wide support, high support across party lines. Um, you may recall back in the 1990s, 23 states passed laws to put term limits on their own state delegations, congressional delegations. Maine was one of them. Maine voted for it twice at the ballot box, but unfortunately it was challenged by one of the states and they went to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court in the case against our organization, U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton, uh, overruled all of those state laws and determined that the only way term limits could be imposed on members of Congress was through an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, Article 5 is our amending provision, and there's only two ways amendments can be proposed, either by two-thirds of both houses of Congress or upon application by two-thirds of the state legislatures. Now, the purpose, as it has already been stated, is that this mode was placed into the Constitution to provide the state legislatures a way to check uh, the balance of power. As Alexander Hamilton stated in Federalist 85, quote, we may safely rely on the disposition of the state legislatures to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority, unquote. Now, a little bit of history here, since 1789, and this is rather fascinating, Congress has introduced over 12,000 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, 12,000. Out of those 12,000, only 33 were proposed by the necessary two-thirds, and 27 of those were ratified. Um, I just checked yesterday. So far this year in Congress, uh, 32 amendments have been introduced uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Now, many of these amendments are great reforms that our country desperately needs. But unfortunately, Congress, as we all know, is dysfunctional and they can't muster enough support for these reforms to be able to propose them out to the states for ratification. And that is why it's very critical for our state legislatures and, and you especially to utilize the authority that you've been given under Article 5 to um, pass HP, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 438 for this very needed um, resolution for congressional term limits. What term limits will do for our country is phenomenal. It will help break up the struggle and the the structure problem that we currently have right now with incumbency. It's not a Democrat or Republican problem, it's an incumbent party problem. Term limits will provide fair and competitive elections. Whenever there's an open seat election, we have more people running for office. We as the voters will have more opportunity and more choices at the ballot box. It will also allow people um, with different backgrounds to participate in our government whether they're teachers in the medical field. Um, this is desperately needed right now in Washington, DC, because we need fresh people, um, new people with fresh ideas to introduce needed reforms and to break up this gridlock. Now, one of the issues that I, I feel is very promising with term limits is it, it's in form of campaign finance where 90, 
right now, currently 97% of um, corporate PAC money goes to the incumbents. And this will greatly reduce the amount of money that is spent on elections. And right now, a lot of good people do not even bother to run for um, congressional seats because they just can't raise the amount of money it takes to defeat a, an incumbent. And so I guess my last point would be this. The reason to pass HB uh, 438 is because the people want it. As representatives, if you talk to your constituents, over 80% of your constituents want term limits on Congress. They've been wanting it for decades. And so I encourage you to please uh, consider this very seriously. This is something that is desperately needed. And in regard to this being a constitutional convention, it's not a constitutional convention. I hope I can speak a little bit more maybe on the next application. Um, this is simply a convention to propose an amendment. It's completely different than a constitutional convention. And there are rules. Um, it cannot uh, open up the constitution. It's limited. And the process is very controlled. And I have a lot of information in my packet that I have submitted along with my testimony that gives you the history on this. And so I would appreciate uh, if you have any questions, I would like to uh, take them now if you have the time. Thank you. Representative Greenwood. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, I wanna be forthright. I, I, I know Mr. Quinn, I've known him for quite some time. Uh, I, I believe he's what I will call a constitutional scholar. I don't know anybody who knows the constitution better than uh, Mr. Quinn. Um, but I do have some questions on some things that you said today and I don't wanna overwhelm you, but I, I think maybe I might have three questions. Uh, one of them was in reference to the constitutional convention. Some people claim that that can rewrite the constitution. Um, is that the same as a constitutional convention? No, there's, there's actually two types of convention. A, a true constitutional convention is called to adopt a brand new constitution. What, and that's what the 1787 Philadelphia Convention was. That was called uh, not to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. It was called to um, adopt a new constitution. Um, it was a broad open call. It was not limited. Under Article 5, now obviously Article 5 at the time didn't even exist. And what's fascinating with our history is that Immediately after the framers unanimously voted on the language for the Article 5 Convention, which is simply to propose amendments, a motion was made by Roger Sherman to give Article 5 the same power as a constitutional convention, and the framers defeated that motion. They did not want to give Article 5 the same authority or power as um, a constitutional convention. And James Madison, in a letter, addresses both of these conventions. A constitutional convention requires unanimous consent to call it, unanimous consent to pass the new constitution at the convention, and then it's only binding to those states that ratify it. Whereas in Article 5, it takes two-thirds to call, a simple majority to pass, and then it binds all 50 states once uh, three-fourths of the states ratify. Completely different. Uh, conventions. And um, in, in Federalist 85, Alexander Hamilton also uh, specifies the different types of conventions. So what we're talking about here today for both of these resolutions is simply a convention, a limited convention that can only propose the 
um, amendment or can discuss the subject that 34 state legislatures have agreed upon in their applications. And HP 438 would be a limited convention only for one amendment term limits for Congress. I hope that answers your question, Representative. All right, it answers that one. Um, I guess my next question is, is there evidence to support the claim that an Article 5 is really limited? Uh, uh, yes, there's a, there's actually a lot. In fact, a little bit of my background, I used to believe in the runaway convention that this could not be controlled or limited. Um, and that's because I was getting my information from an organization that has been opposing Article 5 uh, resolutions for decades. Uh, what it did was it forced me to actually do my own research. And what I found was if you, I provided this in my document there, I highlighted every substance discussion at the 1787 Philadelphia Convention during the votes, uh, uh, during the amending provision um, crafting of the language. From day one on May 29th, Charles Pinckney introduced the convention mode and it was very specific that it was intended for a single amendment that two thirds of the states concurred in. That understanding was throughout the entire convention um, one of the best proofs of this is that the very first Article 5 application that was submitted by the state of Virginia was in 1789, right after the Constitution was um, ratified and the new government began. Over 50 members of that first Congress were either delegates to the Philadelphia Convention or delegates to their state ratifying conventions. So they understood Article 5. And I provided you the debates uh, of that day. Each individual, when they commented on Virginia's application, they stated clearly that two thirds would have to concur on the subject matter before they were forced to call it. So they understood that their role was simply to call the convention once two thirds of the legislatures applied for the same subject matter. So that alone is probably one of the best evidences. Now our history also proves that it's limited because there's been over 400 Article 5 applications passed by the state legislatures. And the reason it's never been called or one has never been called is because uh, two thirds of the states have never agreed on the subject. Now, Senator Bennett mentioned the 17th Amendment. That's, that was one of several that came very close. And so that alone, our history proves it's limited. The writings from the framers prove it's limited. The very vote at the Philadelphia Convention uh, proves it's limited. And also the um, Department of Justice in the uh, late 1980s uh, produced a report claiming that an Article 5 convention is a limited convention, as well as the American Bar Associ Association in 1973 issued a two-year study and concluded the exact same thing. And so um, this is not what the opponents will call a con-con. It's simply not true. And if you just read Article 5, it's, it's very clear. It's a convention for proposing an amendment. Now, all we have to do, if we look back on Congress has introduced, um, every amendment they have introduced and proposed has been a single amendment except for the Bill of Rights. And so obviously if Article 5 is equal authority that the states are given, then they too can also propose a single amendment. I know it's a little bit long, but I, I wanted to cover all that. Thank you. Okay. Representative Greenwood, did you have any other questions? Yeah, just, just a quick, quick follow-up. What role does Congress play in an Article 5 convention? 
Yeah, so um, the, the convention mode was actually put in the Constitution to bypass a recalcitrant Congress. And so obviously they don't have much of a role, but there's only two things that they, um, um, they play a role in, and it's very ministerial. Number one is they have to count the applications. And so they have to actually weigh them to, once they determine that two thirds of the states have applied for the same subject, then that is the trigger that they have to call the convention. And the calling is simply date, time, and place, and the subject matter. That's it. They do not pick the delegates, as some people are claiming. They do not draft the rules of the convention. They simply call it, which is a summons of the states to meet. And the second uh, ministerial duty is that Congress is given, and this is another check and balance, if the states were going to expand their powers too much, then Congress has the authority to determine whether the legislatures would ratify the amendment or the people in conventions. So both of those processes have been used in the past. Our 21st Amendment was um, ratified by the people in conventions. Uh, all the others were ratified by the state legislatures, but the original constitution itself was ratified by the people in state conventions. So this is nothing new. And we have a long, rich history of utilizing um, conventions among the states um, and even within the states themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Quinn. Any other questions, Mr. Quinn? Okay. Seeing none, I think uh, we're gonna do all the fours for both matters and then all the against for both matters. Blaine Batchelder is Blaine Batchelder there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, could you? Uh, you have three minutes, and just introduce yourself and what organization you're with, or or what town you're from. Okay. Yes. First, I'd like to start by saying thank you for allowing me to speak. My name is Blaine Batchelder. I'm speaking in support. HB 467. I'm from Stetson, Maine. I'm a hardworking blue collar father of one beautiful daughter and husband of seven years. Uh, I met my wife in college. Didn't have any money. Uh, with hard work and determination, I paid off my loans and purchased a home to start my family in. I now have a savings and started saving for my daughter's future. My story is just like millions of other Americans, and it used to be called the American dream. Now the American dream looks a lot more like an Instagram story, photoshopped and edited to look like sunshine and rainbows. In reality, it's full of overburdening taxes, unconstitutional mandates, and governmental overreach. This comes from career politicians that don't know what life is like outside the DC bubble. The historic spending seen from the federal government should not be a surprise to anyone as our government cannot let a good crisis go to waste. Nobody living in this country today will ever see our federal debt paid off, nor will our children or our grandchildren. That alone should cause everyone to support sending the government back to its constitutional box. The simple fact that politicians in DC are trying to federalize our elections should be reason enough to call a convention and rein in the overreaching power grab. 
our founding fathers specifically gave the states power over our elections, not career politicians in DC. The term career politician was never supposed to be a household term. Let me ask you, when you buy a house, you get a big packet of paperwork with the loan details. Do you read through it or do you just sign it and grab the keys? People in DC grab the keys without even signing. Now I know everybody on this call balances their budget, their checkbook and lives within their means. Why shouldn't our federal government? Federal budget is so long and cumbersome, nobody has time to read it, nor do they really care because it's not their money. Republics have failed all throughout history because of their inability to pay off their debt. Also, we are more divided now than before the Civil War, as can be seen from our last election. Calling a convention of states to propose amendments and return the power to the people is exactly what we need. Our founding fathers knew that even though at the time of the signing of the Constitution, freedom was ringing louder than ever, that evil people would try to pervert our Constitution, so they voted unanimously on Article 5 to secure the states a way to preserve our great Constitution. Before I found Convention of States, my outlook on America was bleak at best. After doing my research and found that it was a safe, reliable way to alter our Constitution, I started volunteering all my time, which is not much, and I ask that you do the same. If you have any concerns, simply look and read what Article 5 has to say and what the great James Madison had to say about it. I'll leave you with one question before I go, that if the great George Washington were alive today, would he vote yay or nay on this resolution? And I thank you, and that is all. Thank you, sir. Any questions for Mr. Batchelder? Thank you, Mr. Batchelder, for your time and your testimony. Our next speaker is David Simmons. Mr. Simmons, you have the floor for three minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Baldarty, uh, Representative Matlack, and the members of the uh, state and local government committee. Uh, good morning, or excuse me, good afternoon now. Been a long morning. Uh, my name is David Simmons. I'm a resident of Bangor, and I am here to, in strong support of HP 467. And I thank you for that opportunity. Uh, why am I so passionate about uh, the Constitution? Uh, in February of 1975, as a, a high school senior, I raised my right hand and enlisted in the United States Army. I swore an oath to my God and before my peers that I would support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I wasn't asked to defend its borders. That was understood. I wasn't asked to defend a particular ethnicity, though all would be shielded. I was asked to defend an idea, a concept. That idea, unlike other nations, is passed down from generation to generation. We teach it to our children. We, we try to Im impress upon them the gift that we have. Uh, this idea, this gift, this, this uh, blessing is, is liberty through self-governance. When I swore that oath, it was a covenant oath, which one gives his entire being into a family bond tighter than any contract. I served in the United States Army for 42 years, 
Today, four years since my retirement, that oath is still in effect, still just as strong and still in my blood. I take this very seriously. Uh, today, our federal government is out of control. It has become an enormous bureaucracy. It spends way too much and is intent on encroaching into the, our day-to-day -day lives through regulation and other controls. Uh, Thomas Jefferson once said, as government grows, liberty decreases. There is no indication that Washington wants to or is capable of repairing these problems. But I don't believe that this is a people problem in Washington. I don't agree with the majority of politicians or bureaucrats in Washington, but I want to believe that they are doing their best. I see it as a structural problem within the government. The founders knew man's nature, his and her ambition. They knew the dangers of majority faction. They structured our constitution to limit the effects of these failings. They gave us the separation of powers, legislative balances and checks, an independent judiciary and representative legislatures. In recent years, these structures have been ignored, bent, broken, and only observed when they're working when it was due to their benefit. The different branches of government are provided various powers through the consent of the governed. A government protects the life and property of its citizens. It must control the passions of its citizens and also must control its own passions. The way this is done is through, a, through legislation by reason and deliberation, providing a filter for the passions of our nation. The founders knew that there would be a need to adjust various parts of the Constitution in the future due to the discoveries of inefficiencies in its working. But a Constitution, by its very nature, is supposed to be solid, concrete, uh, to stand the test of time. So they understood that there would have to be a way of adjustments. So the U.S. Constitution's Article 5 gives we, the people, the charge to apply through state legislatures for the establishment of a convention of states for the purpose of proposing amendments. The founders in their joint wisdom, wanted the amendment process to be difficult, but not impossible. Notice also that there's no test given for this. You don't have to come up with specifics why you want to have a, a constitution uh, convention of states. When the convention of states is convened and the various committees deliver through de deliberation, proposed amendments centered on the three areas of our resolution, limiting the federal government, fiscal restraints, Maine has a balanced budget, its power and uh, jurisdiction, I'm sure that some of you must have had some people come up to you from time to time and talk about, uh, talk about their problem with regulatory controls, too many, too many regulations. And three, term limits for officials and members of Congress and has, been spent, has already been uh, mentioned, we have those term limits. After the proposed amendments are debated, changed if need be, and then voted on and accepted, our representative democracy will not have changed. The Bill of Rights will still be there. The making of legislation and adjudicating laws or execution of them will remain unchanged. All that will have changed is that those that consent to be governed will have strengthened the existing structure of the U.S. Constitution of our government by minimizing individual and group ambition. This will return much needed power to the states where most of the domestic power should be exercised and give the states its proper place in our federal form of government exerting some balance to Washington. We must make the United States of America plural again. Uh, Senator Baldarchi, Representative Matlick, and members of the state and local government, I thank you for your time and the opportunity to speak. I ask that you consider the problems in Washington, the necessity of HP 467, and give it your support by voting on to pass. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Simmons. Our next speaker is, uh, are there any questions for Mr. Simmons? 
Seeing none, our next speaker is John Bennett. Mr. Bennett, you have three minutes. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, Mr. Baldacci, Mr. Ms. Matlack, and other members of the committee. My name is John Bennett. I'm the state director for Convention of the State Project. I'm supporting Article 5 through HP 467, and I live in the town of Milo. I'm a husband, father, corrections officer, and entrepreneur. All the things I am today, I can identify myself as, were made possible by virtue of the freedoms granted to me by the United States Constitution. For the past several years, I have watched our Constitution be watered down and picked apart by career politicians in Washington, D.C. Politicians who most of the time don't seem to care about the people of Maine until they need a vote or a seat in one chamber or the other. Every election season, they stand on their soapbox and preach about issues that we face as a state and as a nation, making promises to change things for the better and ultimately go back to work preserving their power and taking more and more rights away from me and my family. Washington has grown too powerful and too entrenched by special interest money. <clears throat> Members of Congress have become beholden to corporations and big money lobby groups and less beholden to we the people whom they are supposed to derive their power from. My high school history teacher emphasized that if we remember nothing else from his class, remember this, and he would point to a wall with a poster of Winston Churchill and the famous quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. In the past four years, Washington has turned into a soap opera rather than a place of governance. Our elected officials have become celebrities rather than representatives of the people. They preach to us from the bully pulpit on what to think, what to do, how to feel, and how to speak. Seems to me at times they want to control every aspect of our lives and only view us little folk as a source of revenue for their big agendas. If you want evidence of this, look no further than our sitting president. On April 7th, 2021, the president of the United States came on national television made the following statement. No amendment to the Constitution is absolute. Let that sink in for a minute. That should concern everybody. Those words had meaning to me. It had meaning that the foundation that our country was built on, the very building blocks of our nation, are precariously positioned to be toppled over. The amendments the Bill of Rights are not arbitrary guidelines, nor are they designed to control the people. They are written to limit the power of the federal government. These limitations of power are absolute, and they have been solidified by the blood of patriots throughout the years of this country whom have died to preserve that sacred document. I support Article 5, Convention of States, HP 467. This remedy provided by our founders was put into place in this, for this very moment in history. Washington, D.C. and the federal government have become too big. We need to return them back to a place where they are serving the people, not themselves. Thank you for your time and for your willingness to listen. Thank you, uh, Mr. Bennett. Any questions for Mr. Bennett? Okay, seeing none, I think our next speaker just trying to see who is next in line. Um, Rita Peter. 
Greg, well, Greg Sawyer is on the phone, but I can't seem to get him to unmute. Okay, well, when he unmutes, we'll, we'll uh, hear his testimony, but until then, we'll... All right. Peters, welcome to state and local government. You have each speaker other than the sponsors are allowed three minutes. So you have the floor for three minutes. Thank you. Good afternoon. I am Rita Peters. I am an attorney and I serve as the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with Convention of States Action. I'm here to testify in support of HP 467, the application for a convention of the states to propose amendments that would do three things, impose fiscal restraints on Washington, limit its power and jurisdiction, and set term limits for federal officials. Federal overreach hurts your constituents. For example, overregulation by unelected bureaucrats hurts small local businesses and kills jobs. Centralization of power in DC leads to corruption. It gives special interests undue influence through a relatively small number of power players. And irresponsible, unlimited federal spending is bankrupting our children's futures. We all know the American people are overwhelmingly dissatisfied with the job our federal government is doing. And in this day and age, the feds seem to be doing every job. This is not the way our system was ever designed to operate. The state legislatures, you all, were always meant to do the majority of policymaking. And there are great reasons for that. You are accessible to the hardworking people of your state, whereas the average citizen has no real hope of impacting Congress, but they can talk to you. They can tell you about the real problems they face and have input on how you resolve those problems. By bringing more of the policymaking authority back to you at the state level, we empower ordinary citizens, your constituents. And that's what this resolution is all about. It's not about mandating a certain type of public policy. It's about letting you at the state level make more of the decisions that touch upon your constituents' daily lives. And I'd like to respond just briefly to a couple of questions or concerns Chairman Baldacci brought up earlier. Um, first, it is true that we've never had an Article 5 convention of the states yet, but we know how an Article 5 convention of the states works because we have a rich history of other interstate conventions in America. And all of the basic procedures have always been the same uniformly. A lot of research has been done on that. And it's available in a book called The Law of Article 5 by Professor Rob Nadelson. And second, the concern was expressed about the convention once it gets together to meet sort of going astray and doing its own thing rather than sticking to the limited agenda set by the states in their applications for a convention. But the thing is, the delegates to the convention 
are chosen and instructed by their state legislatures. And when they go to convention, they act as legal agents of the state legislatures that send them and instruct them. So it's sort of like a realtor who acts as an agent for a homeowner who wants to sell a piece of property. That realtor doesn't get authority to sell anything that the homeowner has. They're only given a limited authority to sell exactly what the homeowner has instructed them to sell. And it works the same way with delegates to the convention. They are completely controlled by their state legislatures. So I hope that answers some of the questions and concerns, and I hope you will support HP 467. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Ms. Peters. Uh, any questions? Okay, I don't see any. Uh, Stephen Arnold. Yes, I'm here. Okay. I don't see, uh, start my video. There we go. There we are. Okay. Thank um, you. Welcome to state and local government, Mr. Arnold. You have uh, three minutes. Thank you, Senator Baldacci, Representative Matlock, and committee members. My name is Stephen Arnold. I'm a resident of Gorham, Maine. I'm also a volunteer for the Convention of States. I'm here today to support HP 467 because the Convention of States movement addresses three critical issues that the federal level of government that I believe has us on a path of destruction. Number one, term limits. As every year passes, temptations of lobbyists, large donors and corporations pull our federal servants away from the will of the people and instead increase their accumulation of power, influence and wealth. Number two, fiscal responsibility. The growth of our federal debt is unsustainable, as we have seen in recent days and months, and will burden our children and grandchildren with financial chaos. That will not end well. And number three, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal, reg of federal regulation. Federal regulation is suffocating individual and state freedoms to the point of micromanagement of our daily life. I've never been a political activist, so why am I here today? My roots in America run very deep. I'm a 13th generation American. My ancestor, William Arnold, sailed from Ilchester, England to escape the tyranny of the British crown. He landed in Massachusetts colony and then in 1638 became one of the 13 original settlers of the colony of Rhode Island. In the 1600s, the Atlantic Ocean was a good buffer from Britain's tyranny, but as we all know, Britain's influence grew in the colonies and ultimately led to our war for independence. Since that time, generations of my family have fought to defend our country in every major conflict that threatened our survival, including my father, who served as a B-24 navigator during World War II in the South Pacific. When I turned 18 years old, a few months after the Vietnam War and draft ended and did not serve in the military. However, I consider this, I consider my efforts to support Convention of States, my personal contribution to preserving our great country. History often repeats itself. 
Our founding fathers, who had many great talents and wisdom, had one overarching and unifying principle, distrust of power. And as already been said, we know that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Thus, our system of federal checks and balances were carefully crafted to avoid accumulation of too much power in any one branch of government. But what if the federal government itself becomes too powerful? What recourse would the states have to avoid tyranny? That is why Article 5 of the Bill of Rights. If you could, uh, you have 30 seconds. Okay. We, the states, created our federal government with the ratification of the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Originally, the federal government had few powers. You might say the states are the parent and the federal government is the child. Sadly, little by little over the years, the federal government has gained power and state control, including our individual rights. As we say at COS Action, Article 5, Convention of States, is the solution, as big as the problem. I urge you to support HP 467 so that the state of Maine, along with many other states considering the same resolution, may come together to restore the balance of power in our government and preserve our great nation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Arnold. Any questions for Mr. Arnold? Okay, thank you, sir. Um, David Super, you are next. And uh, welcome <coughs> to state and local government. I just, as I say to all the speakers who want sponsors, you have three minutes. We are now on against. We're now on against, okay. Yeah. There's no one else listed for in favor, correct? Um, Greg Sawyer, but uh, he still can't get his phone on. Okay, thank you. We tried the star six. Okay. Uh, Mr. Super, we uh, uh, each speakers, uh, the speakers to three minutes apiece. Hear me now? Oh, okay. I guess we can hear. Mr. Super, hold on. Mr. Sawyer, we can hear you. Uh, you are oh, very in favor, is that correct? I am. Okay, so as I said, uh, each speaker is limited to three minutes apiece. Okay, thank you very much, and uh, go right ahead to sir. all your, all the representatives, and um, I might jump around. I'm not may have a little ADHD, so anyways, bear with me. Um, I'm going to start off with um, because recently I've watched the movie. It's my second time is uh, everyone needs to watch Saving Private Ryan. That will, um, if that doesn't tug at your heart, nothing will. And I think that's a lot about what America is. Uh, I'll give you a little history of myself. I was in business for 40 years in retail. Started off in grocery five years and ran a true value store for 35 years. And when you have to be to work every day seven days a week. Uh, I did have some time off though, but uh, you put the key in the door every day and it's, it's a lot of work in between when you put the key in in the morning and when you leave at night and then it doesn't end. But anyways, uh, our government needs to be financially responsible, uh, spending the 1.9 trillion and then one, another couple trillion dollars that I, grandkids and their great grandkids i mean the debt is just so huge uh just the first 
trillion, two trillion. It would take, they say, every every person, citizen, in the United States, it would be about six thousand dollars. Well, take away the people that don't don't work and the people that aren't, you know, they're not of age to work. It would probably be more like thirty thousand dollars. And you know, I would pay. I'm fortunate. I would pay the thirty thousand to get this country back on track if 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 they could do it and uh, work together. Um, yeah, I bought Goss Hardware way back in 1978. And um, yep, that's my wife's phone ringing. Just ignore that. <laughs> and anyways, uh, we're driving. She's um, I'm the passenger. And uh, let's see. Mr. I'm trying Sawyer, to call him. I know. Mr. Sawyer, you have 30 seconds, sir. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, way back in the days when the blue laws, uh, my, Sunday used to be one of my best days, and I was only open four hours. And... Uh, when when Walmart and Home Depot came, uh, I had to make some huge changes, and it was it was very difficult to stay in business. Anyways, and, and it's just uh, the the uh, federal government really needs to 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 work together and get their act together. Anyways, thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. I uh, appreciate that. Any questions? Seeing none, I understand that. Ken Quinn wishes to speak, and uh, I will allow him three minutes, and then we will go to those. Well, that's what it's all about. I know, but you only talked about your business and your work. And Mr. Sawyer, you, yeah, thank you. Miss, didn't Mr. Quinn already speak earlier? He, he did, but it was on the other item and no we're, we're doing the same as we did for we're bunching these as we did with the others mr quinn has spoken and also uh, represented greenwood gave him a, quite an extensive period of time to expand on his issues so i, I believe we should be moving on to um the other speakers that we have here you rather will. than um reiterating things that have already been said okay your objections are noted but we're going to listen for three minutes to mr quinn go ahead sir uh, thank you, Chairman. I'll be I'll be very brief. Um, this is uh, I do support HP 467 because of the congressional term of the subject matter, and I'll just want to just briefly address the the history of these conventions. Um, I know it's been stated that an Article Five convention has never been called before, but we have had had conventions of the states in the past, and Maine has actually participated in them. Um, in 1861, a convention of the states was called. Uh, to propose an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to prevent the Civil War from breaking out. And in my package, I have provided you the very commission uh, that was given um, to our commissioners that represented the state of Maine. And you can clearly see that the commissioners are controlled by the state legislature. Um, so they are bound under agency law to be those agents of the principal, the legislature. Um, unfortunately, that convention um, did propose an amendment, but it, it, it wasn't called under Article 5 because two-thirds of the states didn't apply ahead of time. So they delivered it to Congress, and Congress uh, sat on it, and it was just too late. Uh, the war broke out just a few months after that. Um, today, however, this is a 
this process still works today and all 50 states participate in it. Um, every week, there's a convention of the states. It's called the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. The next convention will be held in Madison, Wisconsin this year. Um, Maine appoints three commissioners. It's a limited convention. The subject matter is determined ahead of time. Now, although they're not proposing amendments to the U.S. Constitution, they are proposing um, and drafting and debating on uniform state laws. And whatever passes at the convention, it's one state, one vote, just like an Article 5 convention would operate. Those commissioners then bring the um, Model Act back to the legislature to be um, considered to be adopted as state law. And this year, Mr. Maine is- Mr. Quinn, Mr. Quinn, you have yes. 30 seconds, sir. I just want to wrap it up to, to just demonstrate that we know how these conventions operate and we do have the rules. It, the process works. And I just want to alleviate any fears that folks might have of a runaway. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Now we'll go to those against. And our first speaker in that regard is David Super. David, as I've said to others, if they could limit their comments to three minutes and just identify who you are, where you're from, and if you represent an organization. Uh, thank you very much, uh, 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 Chair Baldacci, Chair Matlack, and, and members of the committee. I know it's been a long day and I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm David Super. I'm a professor of law at Georgetown University in Washington. I'm speaking for myself. Um, the risk of a runaway convention is very real, and I think it is striking how weak the arguments uh, and the evidence that has been supposedly presented against it is. We've heard about a role-playing event uh, down in Williamsburg with no power. We've heard about other meetings of states uh, where they didn't have the power to open up our constitution. Um, we keep being told there are rules and yet no one tells us where the rules are. And if you look at Article 5, a very short part of our constitution, you won't find any rules there or any authority for anyone to establish rules. Uh, I find it remarkable that Mr. Quinn wants to talk about the Peace Convention of 1861 and Congress's failure to act on the amendment it proposed. The amendment it proposed would make slavery a permanent part of the Constitution immune to amendment by any state. Uh, that's nothing that uh, I would regard as a happy outcome uh, of a convention, and I think that is in fact an illustration of just how badly conventions uh, can go off the rails. Uh, we are given analogy to uh, real estate agents or other agents and told the law of agency controls, but there's no citations there. Again, that's a metaphor. Metaphors are nice, but when you're risking the United States Constitution at a time of enormous national division, uh, hoping that people will adhere to um, good government principles or someone's idea of the law of agency uh, seems remarkably, uh, remarkably risky. Uh, and, uh, and dangerous to go forward. Um, Mr. Simmons, who I disagree with in, in general, uh, what he was saying was quite correct when he said that Article 5 does not require any purpose to be stated. It's very difficult for me to think of any change you could make in the federal constitution that wouldn't fall within one of the three rubrics that is laid out in the Convention of States Revolution but even if one was to pass a term limits resolution, once the convention convenes, there are no rules anywhere in Article 5 for it. No one has authority to impose such rules on it. And if there were rules, there's no one with the power to enforce them. 
even if you can imagine state legislatures walking, watching like a hawk and recalling um, delegates whom they dislike what they're doing, uh, it's common that these things, that everything is decided in a single final vote, and then it's too late. Uh, as I explained in my written testimony, uh, with a country as divided as it is right now, it seems unlikely that anyone would be putting this much effort into a constitutional convention uh, if they intended to use the regular ratification procedures. The convention of 1787 didn't. We can well imagine this being put to a referendum with a package of things. We're told every amendment after the Bill of Rights had a single purpose. I think if you look at the 14th Amendment, you'll find nine purposes. And one can easily imagine log rolling a balanced budget amendment uh, with something about the Electoral College, campaign finance uh, with something uh, about the taking clause or any number of shifts and packages and log rolls. Um, most state legislatures uh, are limited in their agendas, but this would not be. I thank you all very much. Any questions for Mr. Super? Seeing none, thank you. Uh, is this a question for Mr. Super? Yes, it is. Okay, for Professor Super, um, I, I just wanted to um, quickly um, ask about your background. You are a constitutional law professor at Georgetown University. So this is your area of expertise? I've, I've published extensively on constitutional law. Yes, uh, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Professor Super, I, I think one of the points that you made uh, kind of relates to the runaway convention idea, which is um, that once these people, once the delegates meet, they could meet for any purpose, couldn't they? Yes, they can. There's nothing in Article 5 that limits them, and there's no body that has the authority to tell them otherwise. The Supreme Court has said that the federal courts may not intervene in the process of amending the Constitution. Okay. Thank you, sir. So you I much. just want to indicate that I understand Mr. Merletti Mer signed up a few minutes before we got started, but, um, and I was going off the written, the list I had from um, Cheryl. Um, I know we have a number of people who wish to speak against. I'm gonna let Mr. Merletti do his three minutes and then we're gonna go back to all the against. So- Do we Mr. have anybody else that wants to speak against? I mean, we've yeah, gone through I, the list of people who had signed up. Actually, everybody's on online now. We have just uh, Mr. Merletti and Mr. Haywood are the only ones left now. Yes. Is Mr. Haywood for or against? He's against. Okay. So just these two, these are the last two speakers. Okay. Yes, correct. As I've said to all the other speakers, regardless of their position, you have three minutes and we're gonna hold you to that. Mr. Marletti, can you hear me? You're gonna have to unmute, sir. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Baldacci and uh, Representative Matlock. Uh, we've met a milestone today. Um, this is the first time Senator Baldacci and I are on the same page. Uh, I signed up to be against these two HPs. Um, I'd like to begin by saying um, I'm really happy to hear all these people speaking either for or against uh, these HPs because 
this gives me some indication that people really do care about the Constitution. And they take, they've taken enough time to do some studies, so I thank everyone for doing what they're doing. Um, a rule of mine is to never begin a report with a question. In this case here, I have three, the, three of them for you. Um, why do we even want to open the door to something this dangerous? Uh, number two, why change the U.S. Constitution if the oath of the legislators aren't respected? Why, why give them the power to continue to be in fraud if they don't read, study, or learn how to use the Constitution? The reason why we have this problem is the legislators don't read either their own state constitution or the federal constitution. Now, this is my third question for everyone listening today. Um, if you support or vote for an Article 5 constitutional convention, and as an end result, the constitution is weakened or destroyed, could you live with the guilt and the fact that you are partially responsible for the destruction and demise of our precious constitution? Now, this is not a um, Democrat versus Republican issue. The socialists and the communists and the fascists have been targeting the U.S. Constitution since they realized that the people in the United States had unalienable protections which are recognized in the U.S. Constitution and also in the main Constitution. In other words, the people in the United States have supreme laws, supreme laws that establish natural, and for those of you who believe in God, God-given rights that would, without question, be protected from the opposing ideologies that would remove these rights. So far, whether we agree or don't agree, the United States is currently the world leader and protector. It is our constitution that has enabled us to remain free and strong in every aspect. It is our constitution that our country, re, country is re, revered and would like to, they would like to replicate and possess what we have, what we have now. If Mr. our constitution Mr. is weakened Maletti? or destroyed, Maletti? so goes the world's protection. Mr. Merletti, you I don't get six minutes, by the way, that? Senator Baldacci. What's that? How come I don't get six minutes? I've got an 11-page document in front of you. Well, because we don't have we only have 24 hours in the day. So yeah, I'm well, how to... come Ken gets it and I don't? Okay. Um, I would ask that you submit your written testimony. Um, you should have that right now. And if anybody has a question, I'm going to say this. This is the time to ask the question while it's live so that people cannot twist the question or the answer. Now, we've been writing this document for eight years. So if you have a question, hit me with it. Okay. Thank you very much. Are there any questions for Mr. Merletti? Okay. Seeing none. You had Somebody. your chance. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Hayward, you are our last speaker. I understand that you're against. Yes, is that, that is correct. Okay, could you introduce yourself and let us know where you're from and if you represent an organization? 
Certainly. Um, my name is Will Hayward. I am a resident of Portland, and I'm here today as the Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters of Maine. Um, good afternoon, Senator Baldacci, Representative Matlack, Honorable Members of the Committee. Um, I'm testifying in opposition to HP 438. This resolution asks the U.S. Congress to call a constitutional convention to propose an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to limit term limits for its officials and members of Congress. The League of Women Voters opposes term limits for legislative office. We have opposed term limits since 1991. We worked in opposition to term limits when the issue came before the citizens of Maine in 1993 and again in 2007. We believe that term limits violate the ultimate right of voters to choose the representatives who best serve their needs. In Maine, experience has shown that by disqualifying experienced and capable legislators, term limits make our government less representative of voters, less accountable, and less effective. It is not in the best long-term interest of the United States to remove experienced and knowledgeable representatives from the federal government. In addition, we have serious concerns about the use of a constitutional convention to amend the U.S. Constitution. There has never been a constitutional convention called for this purpose. There are no laws, regulations, or rules to guide the process. The courts have never been asked to rule on a case relating to a constitutional convention. There are too many unresolved questions about how such a convention would accomplish its work. The League of Women Voters of the United States conducted a two-year study of the constitutional amendment process. The League's conclusion is that an Article 5 constitutional convention is a threat to every American's constitutional rights and civil liberties. The U.S. Constitution has been amended 27 times without resorting to an Article 5 constitutional convention. If an amendment is needed, it can be introduced by Congress and passed with the two-thirds vote in each chamber, then sent to the states for ratification and ratified by three-fourths of states, presently 38 states. Thus, the process called for in this resolution is unnecessarily unnecessary and problematic to utilize. For the above reasons, we ask the committee to vote not, not to pass on HP 438. I'd also like to speak very briefly to HP 467 and just note that the League of Women Voters opposed the imposition of fiscal constraints on the federal government through constitutional amendment, also known as a balanced budget amendment. Such an amendment would have extensive and long-lasting impacts on the federal ability of the federal government to respond to unanticipated emergencies. It would effectively prevent the government from responding to recessions and deepen their impact and duration. It would most certainly require deep cuts in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and veterans' benefits, among other worthy programs. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I'd be happy to answer any questions from the committee. Thank you, Mr. Haywood. Any questions? Uh, Mr. Hayward, I had one question, or maybe a couple of questions. One is, uh, when is the last time the U.S. Congress voted on a constitutional amendment uh, for term limits? For you term know? limits, I do not have that handy answer handy, but I can provide that for the work session. Yeah, I, it might be interesting just to find out what the votes were, when it was. Um, mm -hmm. I'd be happy to follow up with that information. That is the preferred way for an, the Constitution to be amended, I would based on our history. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, are there any other questions? Seeing none, thank you very much. Thank you for your hey, time. Cheryl, anyone else here to, to speak at on any item that was set for public hearing today? I don't see anyone. Okay. Do we want to take a Ms. Uh, Representative Greenwood? I just wanted to request uh, information for the work session. Sure. Uh, I, I would like to uh, see if uh, Ken Quinn could be available and uh, Rita Peters from the Convention of States Project could be available. And, and Representative Toole? 
Yes, could we have Mr. Souter, the professor from George, to, the, the constitutional professor that just spoke a few minutes ago available as well? Right. And I would also invite the legal women voters to, to also be at the work session. Thank you for listening to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast. To learn more about our grassroots movement, go to www.conventionofstates.com.